So clearly, we're excited to be here on time. I apologize, Nike, uh, or would continue to apologize for our tardiness these last few weeks. Uh, we made up for it last night by staying up till 5 a.m. to get this uh, to get this straight. We were comforted by the fact that Elder Charlie had already been up by the time we went to bed. <laughs> Look, tonight is going to be a deep dive into topics that make up the Christian vernacular, but that I rarely have ever met a Christian who remotely understands. The subject matter is humbling because it's divine. And the subject matter is exhilarating because it concerns the greatest mysteries that man has ever contemplated. <laughs> you could turn off that music sound booth. I would appreciate that. So when we're talking about contemplating the divine, I mean, that's a big topic. And I hope you brought your notebooks. I want to start tonight in Daniel 12.4 just to set a theme. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. That was from the ESV. On the one hand, the chapter that we're exploring and the ones that are ahead of us have been shut up and the book is sealed. And on the other hand, we read back and forth, or run to and fro. I want you to understand, that's not about mass transit. That is about, the imagery is a man who is going back and forth over in the lines, over the lines in a Torah scroll. But we also have the promise that our knowledge shall increase. Amen. So on the one hand, the book is sealed, and on the other, there will be an increase in knowledge. This concept should cause each of us to study and interpret the text tonight in a certain spirit of humility. Amen. We have to keep in mind that there are aspects that we may not completely understand until all of the events have transpired, at which point they'll become as obvious as any other fulfilled prophecy, yeah. like the virgin shall be with child. But until then, we can really only diligently study and ask the Lord, increase our understanding. Yes, yeah. Lord. That's not a bad position to be in. Amen. Daniel 2 was given to a Gentile named Nebuchadnezzar. And then it was interpreted by the four Hebrew youths that represent a genuine, genetic, and spiritual Israel. Daniel 7 that we're reading tonight was given to a true Israelite, and it still had to be interpreted by a divine messenger. Come on. Yeah. There are relationships between the revelations of Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 that will become apparent tonight. And that's fitting since the Gentile kingdoms in Israel are the major players in the unveiling of God's plans for the nations. Mm -hmm. So this would be deeply impactful, should be insightful. Amen. Uh, I think we're probably going to have to pray and then <laughs> jump straight into the text because it's also likely to be quite lengthy. Amen. But it'll be worth it, I promise. So, uh, Abin Bola, will you pray for us? Father, we thank you for the opportunity to dive into your holy rift. Lord, we ask tonight that you would increase our understanding. For we are hungering and thirsty for your word tonight. Lord, not head knowledge, but practicality in our lives. 
and we can walk out and holler at this revelation. Lord, as we dive deeply into Daniel 7, Lord, we are fully confident that we have everything we need for life and godliness, that you will reveal to us what is necessary for our modern time today. Lord, as you anoint these men to teach, Lord, open up our ears and our hearts to understand and empower us together as one unified body to carry this out in the name of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Jennifer is going to begin to read Daniel 7, and I, I should have shown you something just to refresh your memory, uh, because the events that we're about to read about, the extraordinary visions that we're about to read about of Daniel, they all occurred during the reign of Belshazzar. And I, I just wanted to show you a slide that helps with that. Chapter 7, chapter 8, and then uh, chapter 5 is the chronological ordering. And this gives you an idea of what all is happening in Daniel's life at this time. Chapter 5 is at the end of Belshazzar's reign, and chapter 7 is at the beginning of Belshazzar's reign. And it gives you some insight into, do you remember that Daniel had... A little bit of a perceivable attitude when he's talking to Belshazzar, like I knew your dad and he was a, or your granddad and he was a king, but you, uh, well, it's because he already knew what what happened in Daniel seven. Like he, he he knows what the outcome of the Gentile world is. Look, uh, keep that in mind as you hear uh, the text tonight, and we're just going to go through it together, and uh, it, it'll be fun. It'll be really good. Are y'all excited? Yes. yes. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven, churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the other, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. I was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening, and very powerful. It had large iron teeth, and it crushed and devoured its victims, and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eye of a man, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were open. Then I continued to watch before 
I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all of this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth, but the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws. The beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times and a half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole earth will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. Hallelujah. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, yeah. and all the yeah. rulers will worship and obey him. Yeah. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. All right, so we have 28 verses tonight. I think just this week, we probably spent 20 contiguous hours studying this chapter. If you multiply that times five, then we would have what you call at FCR about 100 billable man hours. <laughs> but these hours are not billable. This is all for free. That's all to say that tonight's going to be exciting. We're going to spend some time in these 28 verses. So let's jump straight in and everybody be ready for the amazing revelation we're going to get. So verse one. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. So this first verse and what's happening in it kind of reminded us of the movie Inception. (laughs) What we see here is Daniel's having a dream, and visions are occurring within the dream. 
He's having a dream and having visions. But it's also noteworthy that he seems to have genuine interactions within the vision as a very real experience. Look, we cannot look into all of the references where dreams are pivotal in the scripture. Uh, We could, but we're not. Because any serious student should discover that themselves. And if you're serious, you would probably start in Job 33, 14 through 15, or you would look at the life of Joseph, the husband of Mary, etc., etc. Dreams and visions are very, very prominent in the Bible. But uh, we want to note that Daniel wrote the substance of his dream. Say substance. Substance. And not necessarily every vivid detail, because that would probably be impossible. He wrote the substance of his dream. You may have noticed also that at the end he was clearly overwhelmed when he received this dream. All of this caused his face to turn pale. Now again, we could make numerous comparisons to Daniel and John the Revelator, both in the substance of their visions and the circumstances under which they occurred. But again, you are serious students and you can make those evaluations yourselves now something that we did want to remind you of as we get into verse two is daniel's track record up to this point daniel the man has quite the track record look at this slide highlights in the lifespan of daniel he was born around 620 bc he's only about 14 years old when he arrives to babylon this is after the exile from jerusalem and he begins training at 14 years old, for about three years. He's in his mid-teens when he dictates and interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a statue back in Daniel chapter 2. He's a teenager doing this in front of the king. Now, that box right there of yellow, Daniel is about 81 years old when he confronts Belshazzar before Babylon falls to the Persians in Daniel 5. This is quite the track record that Daniel is building, isn't it? He already received the dream of the four beasts in chapter 7, where we are tonight. And the vision of the ram and the goat in chapter 8, where we'll be next week. He's about 81 years old when he receives the vision of the 70 weeks in Daniel chapter 9. He's building his track record. He's about 83 years old when he's thrown into the lion's den in chapter 6, what we did last week. And he's probably in his mid-80s when he has the closing visions of Daniel 10 through 12. That is quite the full life that Daniel had. So given Daniel's track record, the effects of this vision on him are simply astounding. He is a seasoned prophet. He's an old man and the survivor of many life and death situations. Yet he turns pale. And he's deeply disturbed by what is revealed to him in chapter 7. This is going to be a fun chapter tonight, guys. Amen. Let's continue in verse 2. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. All right, we want to draw your attention to two phrases. The first one being winds of heaven, Mm. and the second one being the great sea. Come on. So let's start with winds of heaven. Just go ahead and say winds of heaven. Winds of heaven. Because it can be translated spirits of heaven. And the phrase appears several times in Daniel. And we're going to start this in Daniel 8, 
verse 8. Listen to this. And you're going to want to catch this. <laughs> this is good. The goat became very great. Yeah. <laughs> the greatest of all time. Greatest of all great. time, baby. Became great. But at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off. And in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. Now, this, simply, this may simply be an expression indicating geographical designators, or it may be something much more than that. So let's look at another occurrence in Daniel. This is Daniel 11, starting in verse 3. As we're picking up in Daniel 11, we're building a bit of a picture of what the four winds of heaven can mean. Is that fair enough? Yeah. 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 So Daniel 11, verse 3. Then a mighty king will appear, who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants. Nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. So again, this simply may be an indication of geographical designators, like an expression saying the four corners of the earth. It definitely is that, but maybe that is all that it is. We want to take a look at Zechariah with you, knowing that the four winds of heaven is a geographic designator, but there's a possibility that it could mean something more, given that it mean, could mean spirits of heaven. So we're going to pick up in Zechariah 6, 1. I looked up again, and there before me were four chariots coming out from between two mountains, mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black, the third white, and the fourth dappled. All of them powerful. <coughs> I asked the angel who was speaking to me, What are these, my lord? The angel answered me, These are the four spirits of heaven. Hmm. That phrase is the Hebrew equivalent to the Aramaic winds of heaven. Going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of the whole world. The one with the black horse is going towards the north country. The one with the white horses towards the west. And the one with the dappled horses towards the south. When the powerful horses went out, they were straining to go throughout the earth. And he said, go throughout the earth. So they went throughout the earth. <laughs> then he called to me, look, those going towards the north country have given my spirit rest in the land of the north. In Zechariah, you can see that the four winds or four spirits of heaven clearly indicate geography, but they seem to do much more than that. They are real spiritual entities that strain to accomplish something in God's design on the earth. They even need to be encouraged in the accomplishment of their task. Go throughout the earth, and they're straining. The context of Zechariah would indicate that they are real spiritual powers that are being directed by God to accomplish something within the Gentile world outside of Israel. Now we want to take a look at the second phrase. So we have the winds or the spirits of heaven, and they're churning up something. They're churning up the great sea. Let's take a look at a few passages on what the great sea can indicate. The first one is Exodus 23, 31 through 33. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. 
For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So from the perspective of Israel, because that is the biblical perspective, right? From the perspective of Israel, the borders of the Gentile world were often defined by bodies of water, seas. This makes seas a useful metaphor for the Gentile world itself. So let's take a look at Isaiah 60, verse 1 through 7, and you're going to see this metaphor build as we go. Again, we're talking about the phrase great sea here. Isaiah 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. So, in verses 1 through 3, we can already see that the context of this passage is about the Gentile nations coming to the light of Israel. Let's continue reading. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. Look at this. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you, the riches of the nations will come. Now, verse 5, what we just read, is a great example of Hebrew parallelism. The wealth of the seas is equivalent to the riches of the Gentile nations. Synonymous. So in this context, the sea is a metaphor for all the Gentile nations of the earth. You guys following so far? Now, the remaining verses, 6 and 7, make this absolutely clear. Herds of camels will cover, cover your land, young camels of Midian and Ephah. And all from Sheba will come bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. All Kedar's flocks will be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth will serve you. They will be accepted as offerings on my altar and I will adorn my glorious temple. So this relates to what we are reading in Daniel 7 because real spiritual entities may have been directed by God to stir up the Gentile world so that Adonai's plan would unfold in accordance with his own sovereignty. This equivalence between the Gentiles and the seas is repetitive in the Bible. And we're going to go to next to Psalm 65 and verse 7 and see that more. So this is Psalm 65 starting in verse 7. Who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the turmoil of the nations? So clearly, in Hebrew thought, the sea often refers to Gentile nations, and it is Adonai who turns them up or even causes them to be still. As did you catch that? Yeah. So take what you've learned at this point, and we're going to apply it to the book of Revelation. It makes it fairly definitive when determining the origin point of the beastly nations and the Antichrist leader. I'm going to read to you from Revelation chapter 17, verse 1. One of the seven angels 
who had the seven bowls, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. The imagery is interpreted within the book of Revelation itself and explains in verse 15. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. Peoples and nations is the context of Gentile nations that are outside of Israel that this prostitute is sitting on, that she's interacting with. Gentile nations are often represented by waters and by the sea, and that's our context this evening in Daniel. So we want to hit one last passage before we move forward in Daniel to help you know why we're telling you some of these things. This is Revelation 13.1. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. Uh, it's implausible that a Jew reading Isaiah or later reading Revelation would take these verses to mean out of anything other than the Gentile nation. Hmm. In conclusion, Daniel seems to be seeing the Gentile world churned up by the power of heaven to reveal beastly Gentile nations in the precise order that God has determined that they should come forth. Come on. The ultimate beastly nation and its little horn with a great big mouth of a leader will arise from the sea of Gentile nations and no other place. All right, so let's pick up in verse 3. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. So the four beastly nations emerge from the Gentile world and are each unique from one another. Daniel 7, 17, which we'll read in a little bit, simply says out of the earth that these beastly nations came. So this verifies that we were never really talking about the literal sea itself. Remember, it's a metaphor. We're talking about the Gentile world. Now, that's an important thing to remember because there's all kinds of heresies that say the Antichrist comes elsewhere. (laughs) Let's pick up in verse 4. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground, so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. Wow. So the first kingdom that Daniel observed had the characteristics of both a lion and an eagle. Now, we gave our friends at the British Museum a a break this week. Gave them some time off. They're tired of seeing us. But we did manage to get this image from the World History Encyclopedia for you tonight. It does happen to be housed at the British Museum. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We'll get them next week. So, this is a restoration of a panel in the throne room of none other than Nebuchadnezzar's palace. It is, of course, a winged lion. Can you guys see the wings on the side of that lion? We do not interpret the Bible in the light of art and are not attempting to do so now. Look, our point tonight in showing this to you is that the art reflects God's own stated view of Babylon. 
God said it first, and their own art forms point to what the Lord already described them as. So as we move forward, look how Jeremiah and Ezekiel put it. So this is Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Raise the signal to go to Zion. Flee for safety without delay. For I am bringing disaster from the north, even terrible destruction. Look at verse 7. A lion has come out of his lair. Mm -hmm. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has left his place to lay waste to the land, to your, lay waste your land. Your towns will lie in ruins without inhabitant. Here, Babylon portrayed as a lion through the mouth of Adonai's prophet, Jeremiah. Now, look what Ezekiel says. All right, y'all got it? Yeah. The Lord spoke to Jeremiah, Babylon is a lion. Ezekiel 17, verse 3. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, a great eagle hmm. with powerful wings, long feathers, and full plumage of varied colors came to Lebanon, taking hold of the top of a cedar. He broke off its topmost shoot and carried it away to a land of merchants, where he planted it in a city of traders. Now, at first glance, you might think we're talking about somebody else because Babylon's already described as a lion. Mm -hmm. But if you skip down to verse 11, the passage interprets itself. Then the word of the Lord came to me, say to this rebellious house, do you not know what these things mean? Say to them, the king of Babylon went to Jerusalem and carried off her king and her nobles, bringing them back with him to Babylon. Thanks, Babylon is portrayed as an eagle through the mouth of Ezekiel. You hear the difference between the two prophets? Yeah. We cannot take the time to do this with every single beastly Gentile kingdom this evening. And the good news is that that would be unnecessary. Now that you're able to clearly identify the first of the four kingdoms, yeah. it becomes obvious that Daniel is reiterating the information already given to us in Daniel chapter 2. Now, we want to review a slide with you that you're already familiar with to help set you up. So when you're looking at this picture, and you've already seen it, the primary revelation is that there are four successive kingdoms, that they decrease in value while they increase in strength. We have scripture references listed here that we're going to work through because we want you to see that the Bible identifies three of the four. By the way, that winged lion... We told you it was in Nebuchadnezzar's palace. It was in the room where Daniel is standing when he gives the Daniel 2 interpretation. Wow. <laughs> it was probably in the very same palace that Belshazzar's in when wow. he says, you've been waiting for money. Wow. He knew what was going to happen. Yeah. Okay. But look, we're going to leave this slide on the screen, sound booth, while we go through the biblically identified kingdoms. Daniel 2.38, in your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. See, Nebuchadnezzar or Babylon was identified as the first kingdom and as the head of gold. And this imagery as well as testimony is borne out in Daniel 7.4. Nebuchadnezzar's strength in leading Babylon was biblically identified with the characteristics of a lion in Jeremiah 4-7 
And then the characteristics of an eagle in Ezekiel 17.3. It's also noteworthy that the image of a winged lion adorned Nebuchadnezzar's palace. Yeah. Yeah. Lastly, Nebuchadnezzar was stripped of his strength yeah. during the events of Daniel 4, where Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind for seven years. And just as Daniel 7.3 summarizes, he was given the heart of a man after being lifted from the ground. Come on. This is likely a reference to the salvation experience that we taught about for a, for a two-hour period during Daniel 4 session. Okay? We're going to move on to the second kingdom that is biblically identified. So in Daniel 5.28 says, Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So the Babylonian kingdom was clearly given to the Medes and Persians, who are the second kingdom. Daniel 5, 30 through 31 says, That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. As you have learned, Darius the Mede is the regional ruler who took over the city of Babylon, the second kingdom. Daniel 6, 28 says, so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. You will remember from the last session that the alliance between the Medes and the Persians was somewhat lopsided, or it was raised up on one side, meaning that Darius was subservient to Cyrus the Persian in what the Bible identifies as the second kingdom. Now we're going to move on to Daniel 8, verse 20. So Daniel 8, 20 says, The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. So when we get to Daniel 8, you will see that the vision also involves the Medo-Persian Empire, which is the second kingdom. And it foretells the kingdom that would follow them, the third kingdom. Check it out in the next verse, Daniel 8, 21. The shaggy goat... <laughs> is the king of Greece. And the large horn between his eyes is the first king. So this is the third Gentile kingdom and is clearly named in the scripture as Greece. Isn't it amazing when you interpret scripture in light of scripture? It just becomes so clear, doesn't it? So we've got a slide. We're going to review it with you to help you visualize what you have learned about the ordering and the nature of the kingdoms. So check it out. The first kingdom, the head of gold, is indeed Babylon. The second kingdom, the chest and arms of silver, Medo-Persia. The third kingdom, belly and thighs of bronze, Greece. Now look at this fourth kingdom with me. Legs of iron, feet of iron and clay, not named in scripture, but it is an indescribable kingdom with iron teeth and ten horns. So each of these beastly Gentile kingdoms that the Bible identifies have some intrinsic value. Let me explain that to you. Babylon was used as an instrument of divine punishment in the service of God. They also published a letter to the entire world in Daniel chapter 4 detailing the salvation of their king, Nebuchadnezzar. There's some value there. Yeah. But then what happens with Medo-Persia? Well, they too published a letter yeah. to the entire world in Daniel 6, 
Cyrus assists in the return of the Jewish people to their homeland. Some value, right? Okay, what about the Greeks? We're headed down on our scale. They translated the Tanakh into the lingua franca. Elder Baj, did I pronounce that correctly? Amen. So that every literate person could read the word of God. And what about this fourth kingdom? Well, it's the fourth kingdom that is conspicuous in Daniel 2 and in Daniel 7. So let's keep reading, Lintone, and we will continue to help you put this together. While we're reading tonight, continually notice the attributes of the kingdoms as we go. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. All right, so this is very interesting, but we will not cover these events in detail tonight because you'll encounter them again in the coming weeks as we study the chapters ahead. However, we have already noted that the Medo-Persian Empire was lopsided or raised up on one side and that the Persians were the dominant force within the alliance between the Medes and the Persians. So let's go ahead and move on to verse 6. After that, I looked. And there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. Now, occasionally I've been surprised at an inability to understand a metaphor. But just to be clear, these beasts of the kingdoms are not actually the animals being described. <laughs> you guys catch us? It's a descriptor of an entity, of a kingdom. The descriptors come in the form of like a lion, like a leopard, like a bear, which means that some of the characteristics of the animal pertain to descriptors or attributes of the kingdom itself, Mm -hmm. things that are similar between the beast and the entity. So this kingdom is Greece, and it's widely understood that Alexander moved at an incredible speed in conquering the biblical world once he took power, including Babylon, where the vision in Daniel 2 took place. Additionally, it is widely understood that Cassander, Ptolemy, Antigonus, and Seleucus, known as the Diadochi, succeeded him. Now, we're going to venture into those events in our future chapters because they detail a description. Now, a representation of this widely understood idea is found readily available on Wikipedia. So this slide shows you the four breakups from the Diadachi that were after Alexander's death. You can see their quadrants. So when he died, his whole empire that encompasses this area was broken up just like the scripture predicted would occur. So as we move on, we want to address the things that we know you really wanted to talk about this evening, (laughs) that you were waiting for that you haven't heard a thousand times. So why don't we jump into verse 7 together. After that, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. Let's engage with this a little bit. For the first time in Daniel's vision, he literally can't find anything in heaven or on earth to relate this Gentile beastly kingdom to. What? The predominant identifiers are that it was terrifying, frightening, very powerful, 
and had large iron teeth. That alone is cause for us to approach the identification of this kingdom with caution and humility. Nothing in all of Daniel's experience provides him with a comparable animal or combination of animals to describe what he saw. Even the description of large iron teeth is completely unique in the animal kingdom. I've never seen an animal with iron teeth, have you? The more you examine this enigmatic kingdom, the more you will discover that centuries of preaching that say, it's definitely Rome, fall flat on their merits. Whatever this kingdom is, it is clearly said to be different from all the former kingdoms. It crushed and devoured its victims. But even more conspicuous is the fact that it trampled underfoot whatever was left. By way of comparison, the Medo-Persians kept many things from Babylon, including Daniel. The Greeks kept many things from the Mm Medo-Persians. And by the way, the Romans kept almost everything from the Greeks, including their language, their art, and their gods. They just renamed them. The lingua franca of the first century under the Roman dominance in the Middle East was, in fact, Greek. Mm. The soldiers and Roman officials recorded in the New Testament were all speaking Greek because it was the international trade language of the first century. That doesn't sound much like trampling underfoot all that went before to me. In every way, these Gentile beastly kingdoms have decreased in value and increased in strength until the vision has come to a kingdom that has no value and only possesses strength. We're not sure why so many commentators miss this point, but we surely are determined not to simply accept their assumptions because they're pre-printed as your chapter heads. It's hard to imagine Rome worshiping Greek gods displaying Greek art in statues, and being fluent in the Greek language, fitting the description of trampling underfoot whatever was left of the Greek empire. In our view, a regional empire that conquered the territory of each of these kingdoms and trampled down any remaining remnant of their culture is what must be in view. Perhaps the Islamic Caliphate should be considered. We don't want to tell you what to think. Our job is rather to give you the tools that are necessary to come to your own conclusions. If you'd like to discuss this topic further, we will certainly point you to a good few a, a few good resources. And then after you've investigated for five years or more, we'll have a serious conversation. <laughs> Let's look at the descriptors in verse 8. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of its first of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. So imagine that you just saw a winged lion, a lopsided bear chewing on ribs, and a leopard with four wings and four heads. Normal day. Yeah. I saw that at the Houston Zoo. Yeah. <laughs> 
But all you can think about is horns on an indescribable beast. Again, if you approach this with the illusion of the first time, something about this fourth beast really disturbed Daniel in a unique way. This chart is a summary of what you have learned so far. We see some repeating patterns. In Daniel 2, we see a head of gold. In Daniel 7, see a lion. The kingdom is Babylon. In Daniel 2, we see a chest and arms of silver. In Daniel 7, we see a bear. That relates to the kingdom of Medo-Persia. Then, in Daniel 2, see a belly and thighs of bronze. In Daniel 7, a leopard. That corresponds to the kingdom of Greece. But in Daniel 2, we see legs of iron, feet of iron and clay. In Daniel 7, we see something that is indescribable. It has iron teeth and ten horns, and there is no given name for that kingdom. You know, there are a myriad of reasons that we are suspicious of the popular identification of the fourth kingdom as Rome. That's true. We could tell you that Rome never conquered the geographical areas of the previous three kingdoms. We could tell you that the two legs of the Roman Empire is a joke and doesn't remotely match the account in Daniel 2 at all. We could tell you that Rome did more to help the world than hurt it. We could tell you that rather than trample down and erase the Greek Empire, Rome embraced all of its culture. We could then go on to lobby for the candidate that we think best fits the biblical description, namely an Islamic caliphate, but that is not our focus tonight. This little horn with a big mouth really captured Daniel's attention. Ours too. Yep. And ours too. The little horn seems to have appeared in the midst of a grouping of ten existing horns and then uprooted three of the horns. We are going to cover the little horn in some detail as we move through this chapter. So for now, let's just imagine that you were in Daniel's shoes, deeply, deeply troubled, and then verse 9 happens. Come on. Let's hear it. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was as white, was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. Oh my goodness. Okay, so Daniel was contemplating this little horn while he was in a dream or a vision or maybe a vision during a dream. We don't know exactly, but in the middle of his contemplation, he saw this scene in verse 9. This scene is as beautiful as it is problematic. So we need to start to unpack this together a little bit. It's, there's several difficulties, but we want to start with the first one. The Bible unequivocally declares that God cannot be seen. So this is a fact generally ignored by virtually all commentators. But we're going to dig and dive right into it tonight. Our first verse on the subject is... John chapter 1, verse 18. It says this, No one has ever seen God. Oh my goodness. Just right out the gate. No one has ever seen God. Look where it goes. But God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. So this verse clearly declares that no one has ever seen God, and that it is Jesus who makes him known. 
So before you get to all the, yeah, but what about this? What about that? First, calm yourself for a moment. We've got a bunch of scriptures here that we're going to unpack before you. Okay. But before you, you go on past John 1.18, take a moment to appreciate the Peshat sense of this verse. No one has ever seen God. Now let's move on. Okay, this is John chapter 6, verse 46. No one has seen the Father Whoa. except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Now this verse clearly says in the Peshat, no one has seen the Father. Now, these last two verses that we read in a row make it difficult to assert that Daniel saw the Ancient of Days and that the Ancient of Days is the Father. Why don't we look at Colossians 1.15 together at this point. It says, He is the image of the invisible God. Oh. The firstborn over all creation. So saints, when Paul was writing to the Colossians, he makes the bold claim that Jesus is the image of an invisible God. God the Father. The building concept here is that God is invisible, but there is an image that is Jesus the Christ. In 1 Timothy 1.17, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, Whoa. the yeah. only God, yeah. be honor, glory, forever and ever. Amen. So when Paul wrote to Timothy, he asserted, that God was as invisible as he is immortal. Yeah. This is problematic when assuming that Daniel saw the Ancient of Days and that the Ancient of Days is God the Father. Take a look at 1 Timothy 6, 13 through 16. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you, to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, oh, wow. to him be honor and might forever. Amen. In the first part of Paul's letter to Timothy, and in the final words, Paul makes the claim that God cannot be seen. You really couldn't get any stronger language plainly stating than whom no one has seen or can see. It doesn't get stronger or more plain than that. Now, is it possible that Paul just didn't understand Daniel then? What about is John? Is that possible? No. 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 What about John? First John... Chapter 4, verse 12. He says, No one has ever seen God. Incredible. But if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. So the Apostle John was writing these words somewhere between 90 and 95 AD. Is it possible that John also, just like Paul, did not understand Daniel? No. no. You see, the Newer Testament is explicitly clear that God has not been seen and he cannot be seen. Come on. And this is not a Newer Testament phenomenon alone. Yeah. So let's jump into the Torah, starting in Exodus 33, 
Verse 19. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Here, Moses was told that no one may see the Lord and live. And that statement is either true or it's not. Oh, it's probably just an isolated event. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we'll visit Deuteronomy 4 together. We're going to start in verse 12. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. Guys, the nation of Israel only heard Adonai's voice, and it's explicit. They saw no form, and Adonai reiterates this point emphatically in the same chapter. We're going to look at verse 15 together. You saw no form of any kind. you got to love it when God himself finds it necessary to repeat the exact same phrase in just a couple of verses. <laughs> the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, so that you do not become corrupt, and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman. Or like any animal on earth, or any bird that flies in the air, or like any creature that moves along the ground, or any fish in the waters below. Since the clear point is that no Israelite, including Moses himself, saw God because he cannot be seen. Are we making that clear enough? Yeah. 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 Cause you to get rid of about 50% of your commentaries if you're not careful. (laughs) Or in my case, 99% Uh of the commentaries I own, and I bet I own more than you do. Psalm 77, verse 17. The clouds poured down water. The skies resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. Sounds like Toby Keith. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters. Though your footprints were not seen, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Adonai may have used all kinds of things, ranging from angels to earthquakes to represent his presence. But he himself is declared to be in Visible. He has not been seen and cannot be seen, or the apostles were wrong. Uh-oh. And worse yet, God contradicted himself in his own word. Right. We've just given you ten. Somebody say ten. Ten. Verses that explicitly state this fact. So now let's deal with a few of the common areas of misconception. Amen. So Genesis 32, 28 through 30. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. You know, at first glance, it seems as if Jacob saw God. After all, that is what Jacob said. And Jacob wasn't known to be a deceiver. (laughs) He said, I saw God face to face. 
But that is not what Hosea says about this interaction. Would you be interested to listen to what Hosea says? This is Hosea 12, 2 through 4. The Lord has a charge to bring against Judah. He will punish Jacob according to his ways and repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he grasped his brother's heel. As a man, he struggled with God. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for his favor. He found him at Bethel and talked with him there. You see, any occurrence in the Bible that appears to illustrate God being seen has been misunderstood. A heavenly figure representing God may have been seen, but God has not been seen, nor can he be seen. Hosea reveals that Jacob was dealing with an angel acting on God's behalf. Jacob never saw God. He only saw an agent of God. Oh, come on. Y'all tracking with us so far? Yeah. 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 So another misconception about God the Father's visibility occurs in Exodus chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 4 through 6. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. So, in this passage, surely Moses saw God on Mount Sinai, right? Wrong! 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 Oh my goodness. Let's look at Acts 7, verse 30 through 32, and see how Stephen describes this same event. Acts 7, verse 30. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. I... And the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Wow. So time and time again, anytime our initial observation leads us to believe that someone saw God, the scripture reveals that it was an agent of God. After all, no one has ever seen God, nor can anyone see God. If this is not true then you have to eliminate the ten verses that we quoted to you, Peshatli, that state this fact. So in every case, just reading more of the scripture, say more of the scripture. More of the scripture. It cures our perceived problems that has risen out of our own lack of biblical literacy. Well, speaking of a lack of biblical literacy, it's probably best that we venture back into Exodus 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Oh, my goodness. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. As we quoted Stephen's dissertation from Acts 7 earlier, in support of this view, But in reality, all we had to do 
Let's just pay closer attention to the text in Exodus. And we would not need to rely on Stephen's testimony. Hmm. Now, it's nice to have two witnesses, though. It, it, yeah. Yeah. I mean, in this case, it's actually nice to have more than ten, ten on the subject. Oh, Perhaps we'll look at one more out of Exodus. Let's cover Exodus 13, 21. Can you tell we're motivated about this? Yes. <laughs> it's because there's a beautiful revelation coming. Oh, come on. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night, in a pillar of fire to give them light. So that they could travel by day or night. Aha! We got you now, Pastor! Uh -oh. <laughs> it says explicitly in the passage that the Lord himself went ahead of Israel. <laughs> you guys are wrong. Probably shouldn't be teaching. You can see God the Father. Of course, if you turn the page of your Bible to read Exodus 14, 19, there it's clarified. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army... Oh withdrew and went behind them. Mm. Oh. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front of them and stood behind them. Again, saints, anytime it looks like someone might have seen the Father, what they are really seeing is an agent of the Father that is representing him. Yeah. Yeah. One more verse usually comes up in these discussions. So we felt compelled to include it. To start with, remember that it is only one verse. And it is being contrasted with more than ten that tell you the exact opposite of the way you think you understand it. This ought to make us look closely to see if we may have misunderstood the singular verse. Alright, so this comes from Hebrews 11.27. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Oh, you're done, Treaster. Wow. What are we going to do? You're done. We're false prophets. Well, to start with, this verse affirms that God is invisible in the first place. The word in Greek is oratos, and it means unseen, invisible, not to be seen. That's why they translated it invisible. Secondly, the word for he saw is horal. And while it can mean to see with your eyes, it also means perceived or experienced. Oh, mm. So he perceived or experienced the invisible God. A proper exegesis of Hebrews 11 will reveal that Moses perceived the invisible God by faith and specifically not with his senses. So... If you are indeed still with us at this point, are you guys still with yes. us? You may have concluded that Daniel saw the Ancient of Days and that that figure must be an angel. Wrong again. Come on now. We're going to get this thing straight tonight. Let's see if we can approach a solution together, all right? You guys ready? Because yeah. Yeah. you all already solved this in your own time, right? <laughs> <laughs> so Daniel 7 is in the middle of the book and in the middle of a chiastic structure. What Daniel is seeing and is about to see in the coming verses is intended to be climactic. So in light of this, Maybe Pastor Parsons can help us with Micah chapter 5. Oh, yeah. We're going to read Micah 5, starting in verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, 
Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Wow. So I have to ask you a question. Was the father born in Bethlehem? Nope. No, it was the word of God that became flesh and was born in Bethlehem. Okay. The descriptor given in Micah is that his origins are from old, from ancient times. Perhaps this is a good place to start when trying to identify the ancient of days, which is a unique phrase that appears only that appears uh, only in the book of Daniel. Wow. Now let's read Revelation. If we pick up in Revelation 1, verse 12, keep in your mind the descriptors that we read in Daniel 7 just a little while ago. It said, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Yeah. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, Uh-oh. dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and his hair were white, like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death in Hades. So since you may have noticed how many of these phrases match exactly with Daniel 7, we have a slide that will help you with this comparison. You can see Daniel 7, verse 9, the Ancient of Days. Revelation 1, 12 through 18, someone like a son of man. Both men's clothing was white as snow. You see in Revelation, he's dressed in a robe that reaches all the way down to his feet. Then the hair of his head was white like wool. In Revelation, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. Then his throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. In Revelation, his eyes are like blazing fire, and his feet were like bronze that was glowing inside of a furnace. Whoa. wonder why these images are so similar. The writer of Hebrews might be able to help us out. Yeah, why don't we pick up with, uh, with Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. Mm. Maybe I should read that again. The exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. After He had provided purification for sin, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. The only exact representation of Yahweh in all of creation is the Son. The Son's arrival in the flesh was announced by Micah as origins are from old, from ancient times. Come on. Yahweh has not been seen and cannot be seen, but the Son is the exact 
representation of his being. To further this point, Colossians 1.15 says it rather pashatly. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Yahweh is invisible, but he has a visible image that can be seen. Take a look at John 14, 9 through 10. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. So from this passage, Jesus clearly said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. This is not because Jesus is the Father. But rather, it's because Jesus is the exact visible representation of the Father. You guys ready for a slide? We need to revisit John, and we're going to layer this revelation in for you and paint a beautiful picture. So there are two figures called God, and only one is visible. Look at John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. Now verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. The Word is both with God and is God, according to John 1.1. There are two figures called God. How many? Two. Two. The Word became flesh and therefore was visible. Men saw the glory or radiance or exact representation of God, according to John 1.14. Only one of the two figures is visible. So how many are visible? One. One of the two. This one and only who is God makes the Father known. Seeable, perceivable, visible, according to verse 18. The Son is the only way we see God. Oh, come on now. That's good, isn't it? Now, we may not solve every mystery surrounding the nature of the Godhead tonight, but it will become even more vivid as we keep going. So let's go ahead and do that. Let's pick up in verse 10. A river of of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were open. So, saints, this is clearly the courtroom, or the divine council setting that you've become familiar with. Yeah. You've heard it in our teachings in Jeremiah and on celestial powers. Oh, come on. But who is it that is presiding over this council or this court system? Well, We might need to start in John 5, verse 22, to figure it out. Moreover, the Father judges no one. Who does the Father judge? No No one. But has entrusted all judgment to the Son. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Saints, the Father judges 
No one. It's explicit. He has entrusted all judgment to the Son who is his visible image. Come on. More than that, there is a one-to-one -one value of equivalence being described. The same honor that is due the Father is due the Son. Amen. Exactly the same proportions. This is because the Son is the exact representation, the radiance of his glory and the image of God. And he is the judge, or specifically named, as the Ancient of Days. Mm. And we want to take a look at <laughs> books being opened with you briefly. You understand that we're making the case that Jesus is the Ancient of Days? Yes. yes. Good, then we haven't completely failed. That should cause you to want to know another question then. Yeah. And we'll get to that. Exodus 32, 32. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then block me out of your book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of the book. When we're looking at the setting of Daniel 7... This is surely one of the books that are open, and others are described in the scripture. So Psalm 139, verse 15 through 16, says, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So this is slightly different from the first book. It's another book that is open, and there are others that are described too. Check out Revelation 20, verse 12. Revelation 20, verse 12 is going to link another couple chains together in this Revelation string. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. So there are books. They will be opened, but they're going to be opened in the present, in the presence of the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days is the one who will be presiding over this celestial court. Now remember, all judgment was entrusted to the Son. The Ancient of Days. And he is the only visible image of the invisible God. Now that you have that in your mind, let's read verses 11 and 12. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blaze of fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. So we are anxious to continue with our presentation of the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days. But in these verses, with the courtroom setting in mind, the little horn, say little horn. Little horn. With the big mouth, is speaking boastful words that are undoubtedly recorded in the books. That's frightening. We are also told in advance what his ultimate fate will be, though. The general sentiment expressed in the phrase, the other beast had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time, is the contrast between the fall of the third beastly the three beastly Gentile nations and the fourth kingdom. The first three remained with each other for an extended period, but in contrast, when the fourth kingdom falls, it will be sudden, yeah. complete, and total destruction. No element of it will influence Messiah's kingdom. 
Elements of Kingdom 1 entered into Kingdom 2. Elements of Kingdom 2 entered into Kingdom 3. The meaning of the phrase that their life had been extended for a time or were allowed to remain for a time is that those lingered into each other, but the fourth kingdom will not linger. It will be destroyed completely, permanently, and totally. Mm. And the fourth kingdom does not live on for a time, but is completely replaced by the kingdom of God. That's right. And that event is sudden and climactic. Oh, come on. We will try to point, point that out from Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 as we move forward. For now, let's get back to the centerpiece of the vision. You guys want to do that? Yes. This will be the relationship between the one like a son of man and the ancient of days. Because that's where your question is, isn't it? Yes. yes. Or are we boring you today? No. Why don't you get 13 points? In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. Mm. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is, is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now we want to say it is as difficult to grasp the relationship between the one like the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days as it is difficult to describe the Godhead, the Triunity, the Trinity, or any other conceptual description of plural unity in God. Guys, can you empathize with us a bit here? We understand it is difficult to visualize this. But all peoples... And nations will worship the one that is like the Son of Man. This is clearly a reference to deity, and there is no way around it. Gotta be. Our contention is that the Ancient of Days is the visible image of God, God's Word, or the Son. Which leaves the question who is the one like a Son of Man? Now, we're glad that you've asked that question tonight. The answer to the question involves the phrase, coming. On the clouds of heaven. You ready for it? Yes. (laughs) Exodus 19 and verse 6. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning, and a thick cloud over the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. From the beginning of Israel's history, God's manifestation was strongly linked to clouds. Oh, yeah. At Sinai, hear this, the word of God was revealed and God was revealed. Yeah. Huh. These wow. two figures were both revealed yeah. at Sinai. Come on, man. Come on, that's good. Take a look at Deuteronomy 33, 2. He said... The Lord came from Sinai and dawned over them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came with myriads of holy ones from the south from his mountain slopes. So Adonai was envisioned as being accompanied by myriads of holy ones. As the chapter continues, so does the familiar cloud reference in verse 26 of chapter 33. There is no one like the God of Jeshurun who rides on the heavens to help you and on the clouds in his majesty. So you can see clearly that God 
is the cloud rider, who is accompanied by myriads of his holy ones coming. So let's ask the question, who was on the cloud? God. God's on the cloud. 2 Samuel 22, oh, come on. 10 through 12. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. Wow. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his canopy around him. The dark rain clouds of the sky. So in this particular passage, it is Adonai who is riding the clouds and the cherubim. And these things make up his throne called his Merkava. Yeah. All right? Look at Psalm 18, verse 9. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. Huh. It is Adonai who descends from heaven with clouds under his feet. Now, if you can tell, the scriptures clearly portray the divine riding the clouds of heaven. All right, Psalm 68 is going to build on this a bit. We're going to hit a few verses for time's sake. But verse 4 says, Sing to God, sing praise to his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. His name is the Lord. And rejoice before him. Guys, it couldn't be any more clear. Adonai is the cloud rider. Verse 4 calls it out from the beginning. The Lord is his name. The same song goes on to describe his accompaniment. Who's with him? Thousands upon thousands. And verse 17. The chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. The Lord has come from Sinai into his sanctuary. Adonai is consistently portrayed as coming in the clouds with a myriad of holy ones. Again, the same psalm repetitively emphasizes this point. 33 and 34 said, To him who rides the ancient skies above. Interesting verbiage. Who thunders with mighty voice. (laughs) Proclaim the power of God whose majesty is over Israel. Whose power is in the skies. This coming on the clouds is a sign of his majesty over Israel, his people. And his power in general as God Almighty. Can we do one more? Yeah. Isaiah 19.1 See the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. The idols of Egypt tremble before him and the hearts of the Egyptians melt within them. When Adonai or the Lord rides on the cloud it is a terrifying thing to the Gentile nations and their gods. We could quote similar examples from Joel and Zephaniah, but at some point, if, the, if it's not understood, there's no point in going on. The major issue in Daniel is that the cloud rider is one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. So the entire biblical motif is it is Yahweh on the cloud, hmm. and Daniel presents this as one like a son of man. Let's reread Daniel 7.13 and see if we can begin to narrow this down some. Come on. Yeah. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. We've already gone through great lengths to illustrate that the Ancient of Days is the image of God. 
Or said another way, the only visible representation of the eternal one that any man can ever see. You also know, based on the prior passages, that the cloud rider has to be God, and no other figure fits the description. Mm. Whoever is riding on the clouds is deity. Gotta be. What is more is that there are two figures called God, and only one of them is visible. Mm. <laughs> Let's pick up in Matthew for just a second, and then we'll help you put it together. Matthew 24, 30. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. It is nearly impossible for all except the most obstinate to escape the unavoidable conclusion that the cloud rider is divine. Jesus claimed himself to be the cloud rider. The general understanding of the term son of man is that it, it means human being. This understanding is entirely inaccurate, though, in this context. The figure, like a son of man in Daniel is riding the clouds, and that is something that the scriptures only represented God as doing. You see, here Jesus is both coming on the clouds, and he has great power and great authority. Legions of commentaries confuse two different uses of the English phrase, son of man. Come on, somebody. There are two different uses of the English phrase, son of man, in the word. So we're going to help you clarify these two distinct usages with this next slide. Check this out. This is going to be mind-blowing. Understanding the phrase, son of man, its literal definition versus its contextual definition. On the left side, ben adam, this is the Hebrew phrase that literally means son of man. Just what you would think. Look on the right side. This is the second type of this son... In English, it still appears a son of man, but behind it, we have the Aramaic phrase, bar and nash. Two totally different phrases. Look at the bottom of the screen. These phrases may have the same literal definition, but the context suggests an entirely different picture. You see, when the phrase ben adam appears in the Hebrew text of the Bible, we agree that it simply means human being. However, bar and nash is an Aramaic phrase and only appears in this unique passage in Daniel. And bar and nash is riding the clouds just as God would. Come on. Yeah. So this means that when the phrase bar and nash is used, if the context of Daniel is in mind, the implication is exactly the opposite from a mere human being. The phrase in its context means looking like a man, but obviously much, much more than just a man. Can y'all get that? Do you see that? A couple examples for you. To say Carlos Rueda is like a Colombian would clearly imply that he is not Colombian, right? Yeah, Carlos is... We would say he's Colombian. He's like a Colombian. He kind of looks like a Colombian. He talks with a Colombian accent. But that would mean that he's not a Colombian. 
but he has similar characteristics to a Colombian. To say, boy George. Do you really want to hurt me? Yes. <laughs> to say that he is like a woman, okay, would clearly imply that he is not a woman, but that he has similar characteristics of a woman. Hence There's a better songs. example, Nick. Who's <laughs> Pastor Pira? Okay. Ah. All right. What about Pastor Matthew? We don't like boys. <laughs> <laughs> totally different than Boy George. Yes. But to use yeah. Pastor yeah. Matthew and say he's like a Native American? <laughs> well, but wait, he is a Native American. So what am I, what am I saying exactly here? He is a Native American on one hand, but at the same time, he's also French, right? Okay, so he's more than just a Native American. Yeah. Peyton, can you help us out with the slide? So this slide's from the United Bible Societies. Here in uh, Daniel 7.13, the meaning of the term is also human being, but the context is quite different. The framework is that of an apocalyptic vision, and the words son of man come immediately after the Aramaic particle usually translated by the English verb life. Mm -hmm. This shows that the one referred to resembles a human being, but in fact is not mortal. Do you get that? Now, there are many instances in the Newer Testament that Aramaic is utilized to make a point in dialogue or in written form. We strongly considered listing those occurrences like Simon Bar-Jonah. Hebrew would have been Simon Ben-Jonah. But time won't permit us to do that. And the next verses make it clear, uh, make the point itself. So consider the reaction of the Jewish leaders in Matthew 26 and see if they believed that Jesus was claiming to be just a mere man. Because I don't mind stalling at suspense just a moment. I want to make sure that you understand. We drug this out. Ben-Adam means earth dweller. Any average Joe that is a son of Adam. One occurrence in all of the word that is Baranash, with a very specific context. Now we're about to jump into Matthew 26, verse 62. So listen carefully. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God to tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Verse 64, yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. If all Jesus was claiming is that he was a Ben Adam, or a human being, then why would the high priest have torn his clothes and proclaimed that Jesus spoke blasphemy? Consider this for a moment. It's obvious from the context that Jesus' actual claim was that he was the bar anash, the form of a man, like a man, but obviously more than a man because he is, in fact, the cloud rider that you will see coming in that day. 
Saints, we will not list the 78 times that Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man, implying that he is the Bar Anash. And we will not contrast it with Ezekiel calling himself the Ben Adam, the human being, any further than to point out what we have thus far. Because any honest student will see the difference just by observing the reactions of the people involved in the setting and context. Yeah. We're saying that both the context and possibly the language that Jesus happened to have chosen the term from convey this. Yeah. Say, so, wait a minute, I thought Jesus spoke Greek and Hebrew. A Hebrew would say of when he wants to say father. But Paul used the words Abba. Why? Because they borrowed words that they thought had a more significant meaning in a related language. We do this all the time. If we say that guy's a bad man, it means one thing. But if we say he's one bad hombre, it might mean several things. We do this all of the time, and the reaction of the people tell you that there was something significant about what he said. Plus, Ezekiel never wrote on a cloud. And there's never a claim that Ezekiel wrote on the cloud. Let's continue with the cloud writer motif because it becomes, well, I think it's already quite compelling. (laughs) Acts 1.9. After this, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who is taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Oh my. The two men present present at the ascension of Jesus made the bold proclamation that Jesus would return exactly as he had ascended. Namely, in the clouds. Jesus went up in the clouds, and Jesus returns on the clouds, and only God is the cloud rider. There are clear identifiers with the Bar-Enosh concept of Daniel 7, and this was done intentionally to connect Jesus to the one like a son of man that is approaching the Ancient of Days. Check out Revelation 1-7 with us. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Mm. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. The revelation of Jesus Christ opens with the statement, Look, he is coming with the clouds. This is clearly meant to directly tie Jesus with the bar enash of Daniel 7. Other examples could be cited from Revelation, but at this point, you probably get the idea. So listen to this point that we've been driving this entire time. Messiah is like a son of man or the bar Enosh and approaches the ancient of days, which is the visible image of the invisible deity. Sounds a little bit uh, interesting, doesn't it? Essentially, Jesus in human likeness approaches the deity that can only be visualized in Jesus. Man, that's mind-bending, isn't it? (laughs) Well, since this is a mind-bending concept for people who like neat categories and pristine lines, we have developed a graphic that will help you. So here's the relationship between one 
like a son of man, the ancient of days, and the throne that they converge upon. So on the left side of the screen, you have the bar and ash, the human form. Then on the right side of the screen, you have the ancient of days, the divine image. Both of these are converging in Daniel chapter 7 upon the throne in the middle, and they are taking their seat as one on the same throne. Look, Nick's going to walk you through this, and all analogies will fall short. So we're going to stick to the scripture. But it's really not any different than Jennifer walking up to a mirror. God cannot be seen. The only descriptor of him that you ever could get is found in Jesus. And it so happens that the Ancient of Days description is exactly the same as the description of Jesus in the book of Revelation. And we are seeing these two motifs merge. And what becomes most compelling is what happens next. Listen, with, in light of that image right there, listen to Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Nice. Like singular throne, multiple people sitting on the same throne. It's easier when one of them doesn't have a physical form. Yeah. At times, the scripture portrays Jesus at the right hand of the father. This is an expression. The father cannot be seen, guys. We went through 10 plus scriptures about that earlier. In reality, there is only one literal throne with the deity sitting on it in human form. And that one is occupied by Jesus, who is like a son of man and is the ancient of days. We're going to reread Daniel 7 while you are grappling with this beautiful enigma. So this is Daniel 7, 13 through 14. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. Scripturally, this is Jesus. He approached the Ancient of Days. Scripturally, this is the visible image of God, Jesus, and was led into his presence. Catch verse 14. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is the one that will never be destroyed. Now, in case you're still not getting it, Jesus said it with his own mouth. Let's look at Jesus' words in Matthew 28, verse 18. So with this throne imagery in mind, I'm sitting on his father's throne. There's not three thrones. We don't have the Holy Ghost, the invisible father, and Jesus. <laughs> there is a singular throne, and we need to move away from this other language yeah. or imagery. Yeah. yeah. Truth be told, that's a longer story that is working to develop a polytheistic style of presentation of the Gospels. But Matthew 28, 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven oh. and on earth has been given to me. Jesus did not say that he had been given some authority. That he had been given a partial throne. That he had been given a part of what the Father had. He said... 
all authority. He said all authority in heaven and on earth now belong to him. Yeah, the, the power of that statement cannot be uh, overstated. But in case you didn't get that, John 5.22. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all. Somebody say all means all. 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 Judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son. Look at these two words. Just as they honor the Father. Who does not, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Not only does Jesus possess all authority or judgment, but he is also honored just as the Father is honored. No mere human being could ever truthfully say that. It's a clear equivalence, a one-to-one ratio between the Son and the Father, even though they are not the same thing. Check out Revelation 5-6. We're going to start to see more of this throne. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. Where? Center of the throne. Encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So the throne of the Ancient of Days... And the throne of the Bar Enosh are one and the same. Yeah. It is the Bar Enosh that is standing in the center of the throne. Check out Revelation 7, 17. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The visible image of the deity His name is Jesus, and he's at the center of the throne in this passage. Look at Revelation 19, verse 4. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! There is no way to understand this verse other than the visible image of God, Jesus, is seated on the throne and is being worshipped because he is God. All of this language originates from Daniel 7, where the bar Enosh approaches the Ancient of Days. If you still question this concept, then all you have to do is read the last chapter of your Bible. Anybody want to find the last chapter of your Bible? Yeah. Last chapter of your Bible. Revelation 22. We're going to pick up in verse 1 and read through 3, and this will drive it home. Amen. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Interesting. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. And his servants will serve him. Saints, you have to notice, there are not two thrones with two figures on them. There is a throne, one throne, occupied by the deity and the only visual image of the deity that can be seen. Jesus is in some sense both the one like the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days sitting on one One throne. throne. 
Now, you have to appreciate that we've been at this an hour and 40 minutes teaching about the Godhead, the deity, the plural unity, and what some people would call Trinity. And where is it derived from? Daniel 7. Yeah. It's not a New Testament concept. It's turning to the New Testament before you've understood the old that has actually caused what amounts to polytheism. We're not oneness. They are not the same. The Son and the Father occupy the throne, but the Father does not have a physical form. Yeah. Anytime you think you have ever seen him or someone saw him, they were only seeing his image, who is Christ. Colossians puts this so succinctly that it's, it's too difficult for people to grasp. When you give the answer too quickly, sometimes people just can't get there because they didn't go on the journey that we just went on. Colossians 2.9. For in him, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. And Philippians describes the method by which Adonai has received, revealed this to the powers of on the earth and in the heavens. So forget what you think you know about Philippians for a minute, and let's read through Philippians together based on what you now know, and maybe kind of intuitively knew before, but certainly could not articulate. Mm. It's a reiteration of the scene in Daniel 7. Philippians 2 is not just poetry, it's not just a letter. Paul is describing what just happened in Daniel 7. You ready for it? Philippians 2.6 Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness human what? likeness but he was always more than that and being found in appearance in what? <laughs> Appearance. As a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You ready for the beautiful part? Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Wow. This may change the way that you read Psalm 2. It may change the way that you read Psalm 72. Or any of the passages that feature the King of Israel and imply that he is more than a mere man. It is also how the biblical themes of a human deliverer and God as the deliverer Merge into a singular figure. (laughs) And he's the one that is seated on the throne. Now, I have a feeling that some of you are going, yeah, yeah, I knew that. Well, you teach the next Bible study. (laughs) If you go back through these notes and you look at it, if you engage with this, we just taught you how the little Baptist phrase well, he's 100% human and he's 100% God, is actually true and just said terribly and artfully. He was born from a woman. That makes him like a man. He had no earthly father. That makes him more than a man because God is his father. Okay? Philippians is actually explaining 
Daniel 7. You could thank these guys for that. Let's get back into our Bible study. We, uh, That's good. <laughs> if we continue to study the Ancient of Days, our Bible study will have no ending. <laughs> All right, so let's pick up in verse 15. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning, the true meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Oh, amen. Come on. You know, just as the beasts are clearly identified as kingdoms, the previous four beasts are identified as kingdoms, you should also note that we are never just talking about the leader of a kingdom alone, but also of its members. Israel and the Graftons will receive everything that their king has received. After all, they are his body. So engage a little bit with us in Revelation 3.21, and you're going to discover just how profound this truth is. If you grab this, your mind will be blown, and we've been talking about it for years, but especially in the celestial powers teaching. Everything that happens to Jesus, watch what he says. Revelation 3, 21 through 22. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Come on. Just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As Justin unpacks this a little bit, and it's mind-blowing, remember there was only ever one throne. Jesus doesn't have a throne and the Father have a throne. The Father doesn't even have a form to be on the throne. His visible image is Jesus. Jesus sits on the throne of the Father and then says, if you overcome, you will sit with me on my throne. Man, if that doesn't raise your daily living, come on. I don't know what would. So listen, it is possible to read the one like a son of man in Daniel 7 as true believers in contrast with the beastly nations. So the beastly nations are speaking of actual kingdoms on the earth. It's possible to read that the one like a son of man coming to the ancient of days is a physical kingdom as well. Almost like Daniel 2, a physical kingdom is a rock that is cut out and smashes all the others. This is true. This is because true believers are the body of Messiah. True believers are the image of God and will in some sense sit on the throne of Jesus with him and his father. Wow. wow. That's incredible, isn't it? Three on the throne. Look, if we go down that rabbit hole, uh, only about 10 of you will understand it and the rest of you will miss the whole night's sleep. So let's keep going into verse 19. (laughs) Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying, with its iron teeth and bronze claws. The beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. Mm. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing 
than the others, and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Now before Linton reads 21, think about it again for a second. After all the experiences that Daniel's had, after everything that he's seen, one thing captured Daniel's thoughts more than any other thing. Now, in the first telling of his dream, he left out a detail that is revealed in the next verse. It's verse 21. And it's a big one. So, this is the reason that Daniel was so troubled. You ready to hear it? Yeah. Yes. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them. That's a big detail to leave out the first time. Yeah. Daniel just retold a portion of the dream that was not revealed in the opening verses. It is the detail that so plagued his thoughts. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them. The certainty of a specific period of tribulation for all saints is explicitly stated throughout the Bible. Look, as, as Peyton gets ready for Matthew 24, which is where we're going, understand that he said in the beginning he had a dream. And that in the dream he had visions. And people endlessly debate those things. And it's just, it's honestly stupidness. He then tells you the substance of his dream. We have not yet gotten to the angelic interpretation or the interpretation of the Holy One. And he's adding details that he didn't tell you earlier. It's why he was so upset. And it's something that he, he's very, very concerned about, understandably. Okay, This guy's been through hell on earth and he's seeing what the people of God must go through for the kingdom of God to be established. Yeah. Listen to Matthew 24, starting in verse 21. For then there will be a great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, yep. and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. Wow. But for the sake of the elect... Those days will be shortened. Come on. Now, those who believe that there is a rapture, those interpreters who believe that this is all going to go away, I assume that they're just as disturbed as Daniel was. But what did Daniel see? <laughs> he saw that the saints were having to endure this great war and this great oppression. For those interpreters and those commentators, we suggest that they ask for heavenly assistance rather than make up pre-tribulation fairy tales. Yeah. Amen? Amen? Let's look at Revelation 13, verse 5. So as I jump into Revelation 13, 5, once again, as we emphasized earlier, remember who Daniel is. This man has stood face-to-face -to -face with kings since Lions. he was a boy. Yeah. And this is troubling him deeply. Yeah. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies. Have you heard that before? To exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. 
This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. As the little horn will wage war, he will defeat the saints. He will work to conquer them. He will begin this process and will be succeeding. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness. Not escapism. Not faithlessness on the part of the saints. Praying that it won't happen. God said that it will. Hey, you want to know what the best part of Daniel 7.21 is? Yeah. Daniel 7.22. Let's read it. (laughs) I love this. Until all those things are until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. That'll make you understand why in Acts they're asking, is it time to restore the kingdom? This is the whole point of the vision and the theme of Daniel. In the midst of Gentile kingdoms that degrade in value while at the same time increasing in strength, Jesus will pronounce judgment in favor of the saints and the saints will possess the kingdom. The last manifestation of beastly Gentile power is a blasphemous little horn with a great big mouth. He will seem to win for a time but his destiny will be like every other Gentile power ever. Except it will be more sudden and more total in his destruction. Nobody else has ever been thrown into the lake of fire alive. (laughs) When a holy one gives the interpretation to Daniel, we should all pay careful attention and refrain from reworking his statements. Amen. So we're mostly just going to read it because he interpreted it. Verse 23. He gave me this explanation. Amen. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. So the fourth kingdom found no parallel with the other beastly Gentile kingdoms that preceded it. It is expressly different. And Daniel could not even draw parallels in the animal world to that beast. He had no current experience or basis to explain it to us, and neither did the Holy One there, which is really saying something since he lived through the destruction of Jerusalem itself. He couldn't explain the horrors of this fourth beast. You see, this is reiteration with an additional explanation. The time period of oppression, defeat, and conquering will be a time, times, and half a time. This may be the most documented period in human history, and it is foretold in advance for us. When we get to Daniel 9, we will list those references for you. You will get familiar with terms like 42 months, 1,260 days, and three and a half years. The only escape, though, that Daniel is told about 
is when the little horn's power is taken away. Wow. No rapture revealed here. In other words, when the fourth kingdom is displaced by the kingdom of God. That is the only escape from that time. In fact, verse 26 is really good news. Amen. But the court will sit, and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Amen. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints and the people of the Most High. His kingdom will will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. My goodness, there are endless debates about the extent to which this fourth kingdom encompasses the world. Oh my goodness, is it the biblical world that we're talking about here? Is it the entire globe? What is it? What could it be? So many debates about this subject. We just want to present to you tonight, there's one thing that's absolutely certain in these verses. The kingdom that's given to the saints is the kingdoms under the whole heaven. Come on. This is actually universal language. It can't be taken to mean anything other than the whole entire world. Whether the fourth kingdom encompasses that or not, we're not going to solve that tonight. We're, uh, we're going to explore what the coalition of the Antichrist or Little Horn nations look like in coming chapters. You're going to see the same ten nations declared again and again and again in the Bible. But because Tim LaHaye and those who make movies and other fictional books have portrayed the kingdom as worldwide, the, the Antichrist dominion as worldwide, that's where all of the debate centers. Is it the biblical world or it's the globe? We're missing the point. Whatever it is, and I, I want to fully admit it could be either, although I just don't see Fiji marching on Jerusalem. His tentacles probably go into the whole world. Whatever it is, the one thing that is explicitly said that cannot be taken as hyperbole is that every kingdom under heaven is given to the saints. The kingdom we receive is universal. Why do we need to argue all day and night about whether or not the Antichrist is universal? Let's uh, let's pick up in verse 28. It's our last verse for the evening, which is perfect because we have 45 seconds left. This is the end of the matter. (laughs) I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale. But I kept the matter to myself. Deeply troubled. Clearly, this is not because Daniel had a John Nelson Darby rapture revelation. <laughs> Think about Daniel's life. He spent his, all, most of his life in Gentile-occupied territory. And he's been under the threat of debt, uh, death for most of the six chapters. And yet, the revelation of what the saints will have to endure turned his face pale. That should tell you something. It's much worse than what Daniel had experienced up to that point. Listen to Philippians 3 verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Come on. Church, listen. Our citizenship is in the kingdom established by heaven and will come from that direction. The Baranash will come on the clouds with power and authority to give us an eternal kingdom. He will bring 
everything under his control. And listen to this. He will transform us to be just like him. Guys, in our last passage, because we want you to understand what you are inherited. I'm going to read to you out of Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 8. And then we'll continue through 9 through 12. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. That's right. Saints, we live in the time of the Gentiles. We live in the time of rebellion on the earth. The creation is in frustration because it has rebelled against the Israeli Messiah and it is showing up everywhere in increasing manner. Injustice, suffering, and death are what are manifested from the sin. But we acknowledge this truth. And we also, by faith, possess a title deed. We know what the underlying reality is. We know what will come upon this world. And it is the end of the matter. Let's go on to verse 9. Because it is really why we possess the title deed. Why we do what we do. Verse 9. But we see Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. How many of you have actually seen him? I haven't. How do you see? You perceive him as real by faith. Even though your senses don't perceive it. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory. Amen. Where are you headed? Glory. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Yes. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. Come on. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. We will be perfected. And it will be in the same process that Messiah was shown to be perfect. We will faithfully endure all that the little horn with the big mouth can throw at us. And we will do so while trusting in the ultimate establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. We can do this precisely because we see Jesus. The one like the son of man, the bar Enoch, and the ancient of days, because he is both. He is on the throne. All judgment is his. And we are his. Amen. To him who is victorious, I will grant the right to sit with me on my throne, even as I conquered and sat with my father on his throne. That is the Christian hope. Pastor, the meeting is yours. Stand your feet, saints.
Yeah, let's put it on the screen. First Timothy six twelve. Were you guys richly blessed? Yes. yes. Getting a better grasp of what is yours. Yes. Better grasp of who God is. Yes. And what lies in store for you. Yes. First Timothy six twelve. Fight the good fight of faith. Agonize the good agony. Take hold. Everybody say take hold. Take hold. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. What we're learning tonight is what to take hold of. Take hold of the reality that there is one throne. Take hold of the reality that Jesus sits upon that one throne. Take a hold of the reality that he calls you to sit with him on that one throne. Take hold of the reality that there is a time of great distress, but along with it and the result is the until portion of salvation coming to his saints. Take hold of the reality that changes and raises your daily walk with him. That there is more at stake than just the temporal that you see in front of you. There is an eternal consequence. And one of glory that we get to participate in. It makes us see the bowl of beans in front of us. And doesn't count it near the worth of the one who sits on the throne. We have before us a responsibility to lay down our lives at his feet. And with all of our might, take hold of that eternity that he has promised us. Amen. Are you going to do it, saints? Yes. Well, Mr. Aragina, Pastor Aragina, pray for us, please. Father, we take hold of that reality tonight. Lord, we thank you, Father, for your revelation that has allowed us to come into a greater understanding, Lord, of what will be. Father, we thank you. That you have extended, Lord, your authority to us. Father, we thank you that there will be a time when all kingdoms under the heavens and on the earth will be handed over to you and to your Son. Father, we delight in that day. We celebrate the future of this. Yes. Now, Lord God, we say thank you for the process that you are taking us through to get there. Lord. Lord, we take hold of life that is truly life, Lord God. Amen. Father, we rejoice in the sufferings and difficulties to get us there along the way. Father, we rejoice in the ability to represent you, your kingdom, and your throne well. Thank you for your strength that works mightily in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Yeah, you push that button. This one? Yeah.